Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Seek First Podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Rick Brown here. Take a minute to subscribe to Seek First Podcast. I really appreciate it. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready. Grab your Bible, prepare your heart and your mind. Let's roll. Well, we're going to be making our way to Matthew chapter 13 tonight as we go through our Anchored in the Word series, Reading Through God's Word. Our message is unpacking kingdom truth from Matthew chapter 13 as we look at six of the parables that Jesus shares with us kingdom truths. But the opposite of truth or reality is lies, right? And we've lived through the most epic period in our uh, world history for the last two years of a global lie about the severity of COVID-19. And I wanted to get an official apology from an official newspaper and bring it to you tonight. So I had to cross the pond, go over to Denmark, and a major newspaper in Denmark wrote an apology to the nation. Check this out. We failed. Top newspaper in Denmark apologizes for promoting COVID hysteria. For almost two years, we, the press, and the population have been almost hypnotically preoccupied with the authorities' daily corona totals. We have stared at the oscillations of the number pendulum when it came to infected, hospitalized, and died with corona. We have got the meaning of the pendulum's smallest movements laid out by experts, politicians, and authorities who have constantly warned us about the dormant corona monster under our beds. I love that line, right? We're like little kids. Everybody's terrified. And the biggest boogeyman promoter is CNN. So, a monster just waiting for us to fall asleep so it can strike in the gloom and darkness of the night. The constant mental alertness has worn off tremendously on all of us. That is why we, the press, must also take stock of our own efforts, and we have failed. We have not been vigilant enough at the garden gate when the authorities were required to answer what it actually meant that people are hospitalized with corona and not because of corona, because it makes a big difference, a big difference. And we'll stop there. So I thought you might like an official apology for the last two years and that that would brighten your day for Saturday night service. It's always nice when somebody's totally blown it when they come clean, isn't it? (laughs) To say, I'm sorry. Denmark is one of those, uh, also a country that has said there is no longer a pandemic. They're the only rational people on the planet. They said it's now endemic. It's going to be a seasonal occurrence and sickness that's going to circulate through, uh, you know, we know a lot of people right now. Right now, Omicron, there's a lot of people with sickness. Um, not, nobody's dying, but people have the crud. And I don't know about you, but I've been around a long time, and you get the crud every winter. It just goes around. You get the cold. You get the flu. My kids, when they're in school, slammed Two weeks into school, the sickness cycle started, right? If you have children, you know what I mean. The kids get sick, then you get sick, you get a month free, then you get, you're sick all over again. It's your immune system going to the gym and working out and getting in shape. <laughs> That's the way it works. Well, let's look at Jesus unpacking some kingdom truth for us. Read Matthew chapter 13. We'll read verses 10 through 17 to begin our time. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophet of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says... Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, that 
many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Father, we ask that your spirit would open our hearts, open our minds, and that you would strengthen us as we delve into your word, that you would nourish us from your truth, Lord Jesus. May we have supernatural, spirit-inspired comprehension by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this, the first thing Jesus wants to talk about is kingdom comprehension. If he's going to unpack kingdom truth, truth is reality. But have you discovered, especially I think it's because it's so in our face, have you discovered how many people that you're around that do not want to see the truth of what's been going on? How is it that so many Christians that actually will have their eyes open, attuned to truth, doing the research on our own. We live this incredible age where at the click of a button we can find out all of this data, we can get a hold of really good people unless they've canceled them, and we can discover truth. You see, once you become a Christian and you discover the author of truth, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, we are connected to the ultimate reality. He gives us this truth meter, if you will, that we're like, hey, there's something up with that. That doesn't seem right. And we dig into it. Now, this is so important, first of all, in spiritual things, but how much more in just our culture, in our society, and in our nation? Because people are lying to us, and we have to sort through all of those lies and get to the truth of the matter. This will go down, I am convinced, and in 10 years from now, I mean, the investigations are still going to be going on as the greatest medical lie and hoax of all of history, when the real facts come out. Because they've inflated all the numbers, lied about all of this stuff, people dying with corona but not because of corona, and how it's jacked up all these numbers to terrify people. And there's never been a time in recorded history where healthy people get tested for anything, right? It's just, it, it makes no sense. And so they're, you know, running up all of these, these numbers. So we want to get to the truth, and we've been digging at the truth, and we've been that squeaky wheel that hasn't got much grease from people that are annoyed with us, and yet we want to be pursuers of truth. And Jesus tells us some important things about spiritual truth. He says, when you're a believer in me, as he's talking to his disciples, his disciples come and say, hey, why are you speaking to everybody in parables? A parable is a story. It literally means to cast alongside a story along a truth to bring either revelation or to conceal a matter. If somebody doesn't want anything to do with the truth, they don't like the story, they walk away from it, scratching their head saying, I don't get it. But those who lean in to want to discover the truth, tap into that truth. And Jesus says it this way to them. He says, because, in verse 11, it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Do you know that you have the gift of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God? How you can get right through the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ's sacrifice and have an intimate relationship with God and be filled with the Holy Spirit and be the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit becomes your teacher and the one that illuminates and leads you into all truth and brings all things things to your remembrance. We have this incredible gift, Jesus says, that to us it has been given. But to them, these are unbelievers, to those who are rejecting Jesus's ministry, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to all the same meetings that the believers were coming to, yet with an absolutely different 180 result. They heard the stories and it turned them off. They walked away from it because he says this in verse 12, for whoever has to him more will be given and he will have abundance, but whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. The more you have and the more you press in, the more you gather of God's truth and intimacy and relationship with God, that there's an ever increasing understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom of God in your relationship with Jesus Christ and your intimacy with him. It's just like any relationship. You can press in with a sense of new discovery into any relationship. Marriage is that way. I've been married for 35 years. If God, by God's grace we make it to May 17th, it'll be 36 years. And there has to be that constant sense of discovery of one another. You can press in in relationships or you can be married for a year and go, oh, I got that girl figured out, whatever, and just go on idle, autopilot. And there's no longer a sense of increasing in awareness. 
mental, emotional, physical, any of those things. Because all relationships take effort, so you're either leaning into truth, God's truth. You're leaning into your relationship with Jesus. You're leaning into truth even in your environment around you because you're now very perceptive about truth. And you're increasing that truth and gathering it. But those who have rejected in the first place what the little they have, they're going to lose in their relationship with God. And they're really susceptible to being duped and lied to because when you reject the ultimate truth, you'll believe every other lie that comes down the pipe. William Barclay says this, fascinating. Life is always a process of gaining more or losing more. For weakness like strength is an increasing thing. Have you discovered if you're exercising, you're out walking, or you're going to the gym, you're increasing strength, you're increasing stamina? Or if you sit around like a couch potato for four months, and then you realize, oh, I'm getting weaker. Or you go to work in the yard after you haven't been in the yard, in your garden beds maybe for six months, and you get down, up and down on your hands and knees in the garden, and you have to go home that, or go home in the house that night and take some vitamin I. We call that ibuprofen. Because you're so sore. You're, you're not used to doing anything. Just like your body, if your muscles, if you don't use them, you lose them. You're either atrophying physically, emotionally, mentally, intellectually, or you're increasing. It's either, you know, there's, there's no middle ground. You're either moving forward or you're drawing back. You're moving forward or you're drawing back. Isn't it great? It's January and some people have made a big New Year's resolution. I always get a kick out of this every year. January comes. I'm going to lose 30 pounds and go to the gym three days a week. Right? And you went and got the membership. You got the membership key right there. Your barcode, it's on your keychain. You've went twice. Next January, you will have went twice. Because the first time you go, you work out so hard, you're so sore, then you, it takes a month to recover. Right? You, you either move forward or you move away. I read an article about men, the average man, starting at age 30, he atrophies of one pound of bone and muscle, one pound per year for the next 30 years, and gains one pound of fat. So your bone actually, if it's not under stress, also atrophies. You know that, right? Then you get weak bones. So you're physically, this happens spiritually too, right? This happens if you're increasing spiritually. And Jesus is talking about unpacking spiritual truth. His disciples are leaning in, they're tuning in. But then he talks to those people that are rejecting it. He talks about those people that their hearts, their ears, they, they, they don't want to hear. They don't want to see. They don't want to understand. They do not want to comprehend these things. And so Jesus is talking to his disciples and said, for the parable for you who have the mysteries of the kingdom, you, you've been given the keys to the mystery of the kingdom. The parables to you are giving you greater insight and proximity in relationship to, to Jesus. For the unbelievers who don't see and they don't want to hear and their hearts are dull, they don't want to hear that truth. I mean, all of us have went through seasons in our Christian life. If you've walked with Jesus for a long time, which I have, you go through those passionate times, those solid times, those cold times, those struggling times, those dry times. You see... You're not static as a human. You have all, all kinds of ups and downs. But through those times, there's times when I might be listening to a message on the radio and the truth that is being spoken to me from that message on the radio, from God's word, right now hits a sensitive spot and I just don't want to hear it. I'm sure that's never happened to you because you're good people. But for me, it hits me and I'm like, I want to turn that off. Because my head space right now, my heart's hard against that. Rather than surrendering, repenting, and getting right, how many times have you come into church? Maybe you're bickering with your spouse. <laughs> Sunday morning, the devil shows up, doesn't he? If you have two or three kids and a spouse and you're trying to get to church and the husband is in the driveway honking the horn while you and the two little ones are trying to get to the car, and then the wife gets in the car and says, let's make a deal. Next Sunday, I'll sit in the car and honk the horn and you get the kids ready. How about that? And let's go, let's go to church and love Jesus. And you show up and you're all in a fuss and you're in a blunder and you sit down and your hearts are irritated with one another. And you go, today we're going to talk about loving one another in your marriage. Is your heart really prepared? 
At that moment, you have a choice to either increase and lean in or, or to turn, tune out, to have your ears dull, close your eyes, spiritually speaking. You see, the parable conceals truth from those who are either too lazy to think or too blinded by prejudice to see. It puts the responsibility fairly and squarely on the individual. It reveals truth to him who desires truth. It conceals truth from him who does not wish to see truth. The same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. The very same gospel message that humbles the honest heart and leads them to repentance may also harden the heart of the dishonest listener and confirm that they are on the path of disobedience. One parable, two different effects. How does God's word, how does it affect you? Do you press in or do you pull back? Do you increase in your strength in your walk with God or do you get weaker as you pull further and further away from the center of his desire, his will, and his heart for you and I? Secondly, in these six kingdom parables, we see that there's a kingdom growth and corruption. He shares three illustrations now that the kingdom grows amazingly, but then there's corruption from, that happens within something that grows large. This first one is the parable of the tarot and the wheat in verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed, a good seed, sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather into, together the, the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now he's going to give the explanation, the interpretation, the commentary on this after these next two parables. So we're going to come back to that. But realize a guy went out to farm, he, he planted good seed. And then when these plants came up right next to each other, most commentators believe it's the Darnell weed, which looks exactly like wheat until the head grows. And when the head grows, they go, oh, look at all the weeds that are in with the wheat. And he says, an enemy has done this. You see, we are going through this life wanting to sow the seed of God's word. We're wanting to sow good things. But coming along also is the devil who wants to sow all these lies. Don't you feel like at times you're just battling lie after lie after lie? And yet we have the truth and we might radically want to uproot these, these people in some way. And he goes, no, no, if you go after them too hard, just like you would if you pulled out the weed and it's right next to the wheat, you might pull up the wheat. So we're going to wait till the harvest. But we'll get more into that. The next one about growth is this mustard seed. Verse 31, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all the seeds but when it is grown it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds that the Israelis were aware of. But this plant would grow up. And in this, it seems like it's abnormal growth because it comes, becomes a little shrub, a little bush, not like a tree where birds are building their nests in it. But it grows incredibly. Isn't that what happens in God's kingdom? If you've ever been a part of church planting, which I have, I've planted a couple of churches, served in a number of other churches, but you have just this mustard seed of faith. You come and start telling people about Jesus' love. When we went to the town of Idaho Falls in 1993, there was just four of us, my wife and two kids, and we just started sharing about Jesus' love. And that uh, first Sunday, we had about you know, 60 people. The next one, we had about 100 people, and we spent uh, half of my life there, 25 years, serving the Lord. And on the Sunday when we left, there was about 3,300 people at the services to say au revoir, you know, 
farewell. And you start with just this handful of people, small seeds, but God grows it. And most basic interpretations of this parable, the mustard seed, and the leaven in the, the meal... People go, oh, look how wonderful. God's kingdom's going to go really big. And then it's a refuge for the birds. Well, we find out in the parables that the birds are usually connected to the devil. <laughs> they're actually corrupt. So if something grows really big, when things grow really big, there becomes this lack of awareness of what's really going on. And so you have to be more diligent to lean in. Now, that's true in the kingdom of God's perspective. It's also true in government. We see in government, we even have a name for it in Washington, D.C. We call it the swamp, right? It's so big, it's become so corrupt that there's all this talk about draining the swamp, but the swamp monster is so big, <laughs> it just chews people up and spits them out. doesn't matter who you are. The FBI is showing up. They're weaponizing things. And the scary thing that we see, whether it's in the kingdom of God, in the church, but we also can see it in culture and society. Therefore, there has to be a radical desire to pursue truth and to root out the corruption that grows when things get big. You, can, you have to be fearless in this situation. Most people look at it, this is the traditional view of the parable of the mustard seed that grows into a plant and the birds are taking refuge there in it. This is by Adam Clark, an old school commentator. Both these parables are prophetic and were intended to show principally how from very small beginnings the gospel of Christ should pervade all the nations of the world and fill them with righteousness and true holiness. It's true, the gospel and the church has went around the world and has impacted culture around the world. But it's also true, as G. Campbell Morgan says, birds lodging in the branches most probably refer to the elements of corruption which take refuge in, a very shadow, in the very shadow of Christianity. You know, when things explode, if you're a church of 100 people, you know everything and everybody, right? You know the, the parents' names, you know the kids' names. For heaven's sake, you even know their dog's name. You know everybody. And when you know everybody and there's a familiar, familiarity, there's uh, also greater accountability. But when things get bigger, as the church here in eight months grew by 400%, and then on Sunday mornings we were dealing with very, very strange people. Right, they're coming up and a guy's got a table set up and he's a flat earth guy, he believes the earth's actually flat and he's handing out brochures. And we're like, what? What are you doing here? <laughs> the first thing I want to ask you, because flat earth people, just, did we really land on the moon? They also don't believe we landed on the moon. It's kind of a, a weird thing. But it's these strange people that just come out of the woodwork, and you have to be extra diligent to take care of things and to pay attention. You have to press in, because when something grows big, in the shadow of that, these strange people show up. And as they show up... Uh, now, the Bible says we are a peculiar people, but it, hopefully it doesn't mean that kind of peculiar, right? Very odd ducks. So the reality is, is that God's kingdom is very small and it grows, but when it grows and it gets bigger, it requires a lot of diligence. You see, God's kingdom is not exempt from corrupt people coming in. I have watched horrendous things in being in God's service for 40 years, horrendous things in the, in the kingdom that you have to deal with and you have to face. Now, the problem is Jesus is unpacking these, these kingdom truths, so he's letting us know. He's given us the understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom. So pastors or leaders, they either turn a blind eye because they don't want to deal with the mess and the corruption, or they become a part of it. But you need to walk in love and just take care of business and let the chips fall where they may. And there's times that you have to confront sin and um, ask people to repent and get out of their sin or don't come back, disfellowship them till they're willing to repent, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And these are things that churches just are honestly unwilling to do anymore because churches have lost their backbone to do the right thing. They've lost their backbone to do the right thing. So as this 
unfolds here for us. He talks to us about the parable of the leaven, which is usually traditionally viewed in the same way, that it's just, hey, it's beautiful work, working through everything, but then you dig into the actual imagery that Jesus uses. In verse 33, another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now, first of all, for a Jew, they have the feast of unleavened bread. Leaven in the Old Testament is a picture of sin. They actually have children's game that you go through the house and get all the yeast and all the leaven out of the house during Passover. And so a woman hiding measure in three, three measures of meal, which is a, it's 10 gallons basically of meal or flour. It can make 100 loaves of bread, a, a huge amount. But that it works its way all the way through. And leaven, Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven gets in and then it's a, a uh, bacteria that works its all the way. That's how it puffs up bread, right? It works, you let your bread rise. But it's a spiritual picture that here's this incredible work of God's kingdom that's growing like a baker with 100 loaves of bread, but this leaven can work its all the way through. Paul the Apostle told the Corinthians, he said, a little leaven leavens a whole lump, so get the leaven out. And he was talking about some really bad sexual immorality that was happening in the church of Corinth. So Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven, sometimes people are hiding leaven within God's kingdom. There's sin moving through, and, and you weren't even aware of it because if you're hiding it, right, it's, under, it's not like they're advertising, hey, we're doing this thing. No, it's just happening. So you, once again, you have to deal with it. And these three parables, the, the wheat and the tares, and the leaven and the mustard seed, are pictures of God's kingdom growing, but the corruption that can grow in it also that you have to root out. You know, when Jesus came, he had to deal with the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the money changers that were in the temple. And when he showed up, John's gospel says he went at the beginning of his ministry, he made a whip and he went in and he drove the money changers out of the temple and he turned over the tables. These are heavy marble tables. Most people don't think of Jesus that way. Like, he's got a whip and he's running everybody out of Dodge. And he's flipping over tables. And they came to him and said, hey, where'd, where'd you get the authority to do this? I mean, who are you? And they remembered the passage of scripture that says, the zeal for your house has eaten me up. That Jesus was so zealous, but corruption had come into the temple. It had come into God's kingdom in the, the Old Testament functioning of the temple. And Jesus wanted to cleanse it. And at the end of his ministry, he did it again. He cleansed the temple. And so he comes in and he deals with that. Even in the seven churches of the book of Revelation, his report card, he tells them he knows everything they're doing. He gives them a commendation for everything they're doing right. And then he talks to them about what he wants them to deal with, with the corruption. That they need to repent and they need to get right with him. And then he gives them a promise for everybody that's willing to overcome. The kingdom of God and God's kingdom is, is not a playground. It's really a battleground of spiritual proportions. Right, We're in this battle. It's a spiritual battle. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers. The invisible enemy that wants to corrupt and destroy God's work. G. Campbell Morgan once again says of this, the leaven represents paganizing influences brought into the church. Basically, when the world invades the church. That's why when the church is always trying to be just like the world, I mean, wh why go to church? Right? If the church is just like the world, I might as well go to the Elks Club down the lot, or I might as well go down to the bar, right? Because the reality is, is that the church is to be a different place. Jesus encourages them in verse 34, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. He's revealing things about the church that was never known before he showed up. He was gonna build this church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Jesus was going to build a whole new ministry. We have this new covenant, the New Testament. And as he's going to build it on, a, on the foundation of his death, burial, and resurrection. Well, now he explains the parable of the tares and the wheat. You remember the farmer? 
And the disciples come to him and they're scratching their head. They're like, hey, what about that story? Now, there's seven parables that Jesus gives in chapter 13 of Matthew. Now, the, the parable of the sower I shared some months ago, so we didn't delve into that. But these six, this one here, they get the explanation. Check it out. I love Jesus. He's so specific. He tells them exactly what it means. Verse 36. Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows this good seed is the Son of Man. So he's like, this is a picture. I'm the Son of Man, Jesus. The field is the world. He's sowing his word into the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. Those are those, the grain that's growing up in the field. They're believers, men and women that are believers in the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. They are people that are growing up right alongside you that are unbelievers. And the enemy who sold them is the devil. So the devil has children and God has children. The scriptures declare this in 1 John. John likes to talk a lot about this, about the children of God and the children of the devil. And it says in verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. Remember, they're going to gather them together. And the reapers, the harvest workers, are the angels. He says, therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the a this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things to defend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jesus says at the end of the age, there's going to be judgment. He's going to separate believers and unbelievers. The believers are going to be cast. The law, he describes the lawless people. Isn't it interesting that in our postmodern move towards socialism and uh, communism, that the far left is using the riots, the burning of cities, and it's turning into the terminology today is anarcho-terrorism meaning that the prosecutors are stopping uh, prosecuting crime and letting all of the, the, the prisoners go free, and that if citizens speak up against them, the citizens are the ones that are bad people. So it, it's like the Waukesha thing. The guy just gets out, no, no cash and bail, and he drives his vehicle through a crowd of people, kills a couple of small children and some grandmothers. And it's this terrorism on good citizens, what it is is it's lawlessness, right? There's a lawlessness that is sweeping our country, and uh, George Soros is backing all of these prosecuting attorneys so that they, I mean, all, all the big cities that are blue cities that are ran by Democratic leadership, their murder rates are off the chart. It's unsafe to go to these cities. I mean, it's terrifying. The smash and the grab and these prosecutors, the guy that they just um, got elected in New York, he's, he's talking about um, the kind of softness on crime he's going to have. A, a, a prosecuting attorney up in Washington, the state of Washington, told his police officers to get used to uh, adolescents packing guns and not being charged. They're, the prosecutors are changing this narrative. You know what we really need is just a group hug to let all the bad people loose. And you good citizens, you just get over yourself. Woe to a people when you call good evil and evil good. Law and order. Kim Fox, the left, left, wing, left wing nut in Chicago, said we are moving from an era of law and order to peace and safety. <laughs> when somebody's broken into your house and they're attacking your children, they're going to send a social worker. That's exactly what you need, right? A social worker with a notepad? Tell me about your childhood. <laughs> I want Bubba that's been on the force <laughs> for 20 years and he's 6'5 and he's coming in there going to take care of business, Right? But the lawlessness, how does the devil sow people so that they become lawless? You see, on one hand, we live in a physical world, but there's also spiritual stuff going on, right? Have you ever wondered how in the world people that believe these left-wing policies, do they have no logic? Are they not that naive or that deceived? Which is it? Is it both? I don't know. Are they that gullible? Because you see... Their premise usually is 
people are gen- um, people are good, so they just need another chance. Well, we know through six year, six thousand years of biblical history, are people generally good? No, they need to be restrained. Sin needs to be restrained. And it's actually the law that is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. I got in trouble with the law over and over and over throughout my life. And it was one of the key factors of constantly breaking the law that I realized I was a guilty sinner that needed forgiveness from God. The law is a schoolmaster that leads us to the foot of the cross. Because now I know I I need forgiveness. Now, this is lost on people. It's, It's unbelievable. Well... As he gives this description, he says that those who practice lawlessness will be cast into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Obviously, he's talking about hell. People, once again, are afraid to talk about hell today. You know that Jesus talked about hell more than he did heaven? Because it's a real place. It's legit. (laughs) And it seems to be very hot. And it's not like you get thrown into a fire and you're annihilated and your life's over. It's like It continues on and on. But verse 43 is the good news. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Those who love Jesus are going to shine forth as the sun as we get to spend eternity with the Lord. Now that's all kind of some hard news. The kingdom grows. There's possibility. There's uh, corruption can happen. But we want to talk about kingdom love. Because these next two parables point specifically to Jesus' incredible love for you and me and the entire humanity of this planet. In the parable of the hidden treasure, verse 44, again the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The pearl of great price, verse 45, again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now these two parables point to Jesus' love. You see the treasures in the field, the field we learned earlier in this interpretation that the field is the world. And Jesus comes to this world and what, what is the treasure in this world? You are the treasure. It, it's not... Uh, the rocks, the plants, the trees, it's not the ecology, it's, it's humans are his treasure. And so he goes and sells all he has. Jesus, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Jesus became, he gave up the glory of heaven to come down to planet earth to save you and I. He had all of the glory and the worship and the amazing, sinless beauty and holiness of heaven. And he sold all of that, the illustration is. He, as the guy found the treasure in the field, he's like, hey, it's worth me giving my life and everything that I have to obtain this treasure, your salvation. The pearl of great price. It's like a merchant going in search of a, a pearl of great price, and he found you. Now, you may not be feeling like a treasure or a pearl of great price, but that's exactly what you are. You are the apple of God's eye. He loves you so much, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When you get personal and you put your name in all the passages about God demonstrating his love, for God so loved Rick that he came to this earth, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross, was buried and rose from the dead. For Rick, for me, what am I? I'm not, I'm nothing, I'm nobody. And yet that's how much he loved me. That's how much he loves you. You see, the love of God for you is the most powerful transforming force in your life when you fall in love with the one that first loved you. It's not that people want to tell me how much they love God. No, no, no. All you want to really talk about is how much God loves you. Because I love God also, but I fall short in my love for him. But his love was perfect towards me. He has a perfect knowledge of me. He knows everything about me. He knows every thought. He knows every sin, every struggle, anything I've ever done. And he loves me, and he gave up the glory of heaven for me. Now, Paul the Apostle, using a human illustration in Romans chapter 5, he says, how many of you would die for a righteous man? I mean, honestly, you could probably count on one hand who you would actually die for. You might die for a brother or sister. You might die for your children. You might die for your spouse. You might die for your parents. I mean, there's a handful of people that you say, honestly, I, w- I, w- I would give my life for them right now. And 
But Jesus said, no greater love hath no one than to lay his life down for his friends. Like, even his friends, given his, his life. But honestly, who, who would you step up for? Because what you think in your mind is probably not reality. When push comes to shove, none of us know in that moment what we would actually do. Because adrenaline comes for flight or fight, but a lot of people just freeze. Right? You just freeze. We had, we had some rodeo friends, and we were coming back from a, they were coming back from a rodeo, and they were bunch of cowboys in a motorhome, and they had to pull over to, to get gas, and they pulled over in this gas station, and the gas station was closed down, and actually they weren't serving gas, but the guy had been broken into the week before, and on the way there, they were saying, you know, if a guy put a gun in my face, I'd tell him, just do it, and the big guy that was there in the, in the motorhome, he was a big bulldogger, he said, are you crazy? I'd run for my life. Five minutes later, they got to test it out. They pulled into this gas station, guy came out with a gun, put a gun right in my friend's face that said he would say, just do it. And he melted like a leaf. And the big guy that said he would run stepped up and put the barrel right in his chest and said, do it. The exact opposite reaction, five minutes after they had the conversation. Jesus came and said, I love you and I will give up all of the glory of heaven. And I, I think that's just hard for us to wrap our mind around, right? Billy Graham was walking with his son Franklin one day, and there was a big ant pile. And Billy Graham, they were looking at the ants, and it was just really busy. And Billy lifted up his foot, and he stomped the ant pile. So now there's all these dead and wounded, you know, they're just like now all over themselves. And he looked at Franklin, and he said, how could we help those ants? And Franklin said, well, we can't, Dad, because we're too big. He said, yeah, you'd have to become an ant, all right? If you really wanted to help them, you'd have to become an ant. Imagine you in the glory of humanity. We are at the top of the food chain on planet Earth, and yet you become an ant to go to an ant pile to help hurting ants. <laughs> I heard a guy use the illustration of the planet of the dogs. It's like I'm a human on this planet, and my father asked me to go, and I'm going to have to die for this planet of the dogs to save them. And I think to myself, well, that's cool. Can I go as a Rottweiler? No, you've got to go as a Chihuahua. <laughs> right? But the love that the kingdom and the mystery brings to your heart will change your life, will transform your life. I love this story, especially on this weekend for the Sanctity of Life. I would like to introduce you to the man from Australia that is called the Man with the Golden Arm. True story. Check this out. This Man with the Golden Arm. This man just turned 81, and the Australian Red Cross no longer allow him to donate the rare, rare, rare benefit in his plasma that you see him surrounded by moms and babies. This rare Part of his plasma, he has saved, get this, this is not exaggeration, this is a major news story. He has saved 2,400,000 babies because the ingredient or the, the, the dynamic of his plasma, they give it to the moms because they have a condition in their platelets that attacks the child. So when they get pregnant, it attacks the child and kills the child. So when they get a transfusion from his plasma, it holds that at bay so that they can have a child. He has saved 2,400,000. He's 81. An Australian man credited with saving the lives of over 2.4 million babies with his blood plasma made his final donation Friday. According to Australian Red Cross Blood Service, James Harrison, nicknamed the man with the golden arm, has a rare antibody in his blood that is used to make a life-saving medication called Anti-D. Given to the mothers whose blood is at risk of developing rhesus D, uh, hemolytic disease or HDN or antibodies that attack their unborn babies. It's a sad day for me. The end of a long run, Harrison is 81, told the Sydney Morning Herald on the day of his last donation, I'd keep on going if they'd let me. Imagine the joy of say, saving 2.4 million babies just from donating blood. 
amazing. And yet Jesus shed his blood and literally made it possible for everybody. We don't have the HDN uh, dynamic disease, but we are SIN positive. We are sin positive. And Jesus' blood makes a way. Lastly, and this is the thing that people want to avoid. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to preach about it. But if you want to unpack kingdom truth, Jesus says in his last parable, the seventh parable, the, the kingdom judgment, he says in verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? Now this is for us kingdom preachers. You get to share these messages of the kingdom. You have been given the mysteries of the kingdom. You know these things. He, Jesus, imagine all this heavy truth of these parables dumped on the disciples. And he said, hey, you got it all? You figured it out? You downloaded it? And they said, yes, Lord. I'm not sure if they were totally honest here, if they totally absorbed it. But he said, then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure, things new and old. You see, the kingdom judgment is at the end of the age, people are going to be separated, the just and the unjust. And the only way to get just or right with God is through faith in his son, Jesus Christ when you're declared righteous. There's no way to be good enough. There's no way to do enough works because it's not merit-based, it's grace-based. And people get this, they, they put the cart before the horse. I do good works to get to God. Well, you can never get to God through good works. But once you come to God by grace through faith and you're saved, then good works will follow your life. You don't even know you're doing good works once you get saved. God just begins working in your life and you're doing good things and people say, what good works have you done lately? And, and I would think, I, I, I don't know. I've just been loving Jesus. But then I look over my shoulder and I've been teaching this Sunday school class and I'm helping this guy and sharing Christ with my coworker and your life becomes one. I'm not trying to earn God's favor. I'm so filled with gratitude that God has saved me that I just want to love him and serve him. And as you do that and you embrace the kingdom principles of his truth, you just begin to live out. And you're not afraid of the judgment. The picture of a big net, a fisherman's net, taking all these fish and them getting sorted. Those who are people who are going to go to heaven and those who are not going to go to heaven. And yet he says, if we're a good scribe or a good teacher, that's what a scribe was. He was a teacher of the law. He was a teacher of the word, like Ezra in the Old Testament. And so we can bring forth my job is to know the old truths of God, the Old Testament, and the new truths of God, the New Testament, and mix those in the experiences of my life, and the word becomes flesh and being implemented into my life, and to deliver that to people like it's treasure. It's not like we're just getting together to tell some old dusty stories. No, it's treasure that changes people's lives. To experience forgiveness when you're trapped in guilt and shame is the most revolutionary thing ever. It, it's free, it, it, that truth sets you free. To know I'm going to heaven when I die, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, to know I'm not under condemnation, to know that God has a future and a hope, that God has a plan for me, that God is filling my life with the fruit of his spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. To have these things going on inside of me is supernatural that you can deliver to other people. That's why a good teacher, a good scribe, is bringing out the things that are the old and things of the new. There are a lot of people that they're very selective. They only know the verses that they have on a plaque on their wall at home. And, or they don't read the Old Testament. Or they don't, hey, all of it's for us. I love what Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, said. He is not weary of the old, a good teacher. He's not weary of the old, and he's not afraid of the new. And for those during this New Testament time, that was a crazy thing. They were going to write the 27 books of the New Testament through Paul the Apostle and John and Matthew and all these different guys. As you're enjoying the mysteries of the kingdom and God has given them to you, 
I could ask you like Jesus did at the end of this. Do you understand all the things that we've just talked about? You go, yes, just like the disciples. Because you're absolutely confident, right? You got it nailed. He goes, great. Now go share those happy truths with needy people in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you for the hope that you filled us with. Thank you that you never give up on us, Lord, through the ups and the downs, the ins and the outs, and the weariness of life, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. We pray that you would strengthen us now, Lord, as you have given us. You said, those who have, there will be an increase, we will have more. So reveal more of yourself, reveal more of your truth, Lord, as we strengthen our spiritual muscles to use what we've learned for your glory. Lord, I just pray for those who are here and whatever's going on in their life right now, maybe it has nothing to do with these things we've talked about, they're just brokenhearted and they made their way here tonight because there's such a heaviness and they were really looking for your love and your hope and your peace. I pray that you would meet them right now, Lord, in their heart and their life. Lord, that you would wrap your arms around them even as they leave this place tonight and you would be whispering in your ear, how you gave up all the glory of heaven to come and lay your life down because you loved them so much. And in your love, in your resurrected power, Jesus, you are here tonight to touch their hearts and comfort their hearts in your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I've seen the light in the darkness. I won't hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary. And you've got truth for the taking But my heart won't be shaken If today be the day that I die Whoa, 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 whoa And I won't worry about tomorrow Or fear in times of trouble I keep my heart seeking I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, 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 I will keep my heart seeking.